And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I wonder if you or somebody you know has had their life touched by epilepsy. I know I have. I have a younger brother. My youngest sibling has uh, has contended uh, with uh, the effects of epilepsy for quite a few years, actually, uh, for more than a quarter century. And uh, so that's one of the reasons why I found my interest uh, drawn to a brand new book, which is called A Petty Mall, A, a Mother's Healing Love Song, in which uh, we hear from a very, very gifted writer, Ana Maria Caballero, about the experience of seeing her young son uh, dealing with epilepsy and, uh, and also trying to navigate through the often bewildering uh, corridors of medical science in terms of trying to come to grips with uh, what was going on, what exactly was happening, and what could be done uh, to help her young son. The, the, the result is a really marvelous memoir. Uh, Ana Maria Caballera uh, is a first-generation Colombian-American poet and artist. And that gift of poetry, her award-winning talent for poetry, certainly shines through uh, in the way that this uh, has been uh, put together. And it is a book not only uh, uh, captivating uh, in terms of the words on the page, but also the images on the page uh, as well. And I'm very, very excited to be able to uh, speak with uh, Ana Maria uh, Caballero about her book, again called A Petty Mall, A Mother's Healing Love Song from Black Spring Press. Ana Maria Caballero, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you. Thank you all so much for having me. Um, I'm very grateful to be here and to be able to speak a little bit about my book. Before we talk specifically about your son and his story, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about your own love of the written word and, uh, and, 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 and tell us where that comes from. Uh, it, it, does it come from anything in particular or from someone who was an inspiration to you? I come from family of writers and artists on my father's side. My grandfather was a historian, a short story writer, a uh, revered uh, columnist in Colombia, where I'm originally from, and a uh, professor. He was just sort of an incredible, um, knowledgeable, er- erudite man. And um, I also have several artists in my in my family, in my bloodline. Um, so I think that there's definitely a uh, sort of a direct, um, let's say, uh, connection to, to the written word and to art. Um, and I've always felt that I was an artist, um, but my medium is, is language, is words, is paper, is pencil, is a word processor and a printer. Um, and I love, I love um, imagining how words look like on a page, and I love rhythm and internal rhyme and how things might sound to a reader within themselves. Um, so I think it's something that's been within me um, ever since I can remember, really. I mean, I think my earliest memories of being a writer are probably, you know, when I was 12 years old, I started writing my first poems. Hmm. Well, you're certainly a wonderful writer, yeah. and I have so thoroughly enjoyed this, uh, this marvelous book. Uh, tell our listeners about uh, the first instance in which 
there appeared to be something physically amiss uh, with your young son. Uh, tell our listeners about him, how old he was at this point in time, and what the first signs of trouble were. He was in kindergarten. He was six years old. And he started leaning back and laughing in a way that was strange, but it wasn't strange enough to so it happened, let's say, on a, it happened on a Friday. I saw him do it as we were walking out of his school. He did it against a wall. He just, like, walked backwards against the wall and did it. And then I saw it again at the house that night, and I, I took him to the pediatrician, actually, uh, right away. Um, I mean, I wasn't ready to run to the hospital, but I'm like, this is this is very strange. So I, I, I went to after hours, and I asked um, the doctor, and she said to give him Dramamine and that maybe he was having, um, you know, a bit of nausea. Like she didn't know what it was either. And then the next day I saw him do it three more times. And that's when I ran to the emergency room and I knew there was something off. Um, his seizures were very short. They were laughing seizures. He laughed, um, which which was really, really creepy um, to see him sort of laughing in a way that wasn't himself. Like, even though it was, you know, some something that's supposedly joyful, it was it was external in some way. Um, and fortunately they didn't, you know, knock him to the ground or, or make him sort of dizzy afterwards. He would emerge from the seizure and like just pop right into life. Like he would even have them playing soccer, lean against a tree and then keep playing. Um, Hmm. but, but it was enough, you know, I mean, that's obviously not, not something you want to see happen ever. Right. It was, uh, I think at some points it was described as a, as a, a, a moment of, seeming imbalance when your young son would have the sensation that he was about to fall, although he wouldn't fall. Uh, I mean, he wouldn't actually fall, but he would feel as though he were about to fall. Is Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. So he, he felt the need to lean against something or to grab something. Um, so he'd always reach for something. He had like the, the wherewithal to do that, which was a good sign. I mean, it was, a, you know, quote unquote, good sign because it wasn't like if he was on a playground, right? That, that's that's when all these questions start coming up. Like, what if he's on a bicycle? What if he's in a swimming pool? What if he's in the tub? What if he's, uh, you know, on the playground? Um, so he'd have the wherewithal to to reach for something to steady himself until they passed because they only lasted a few seconds. Um, but it did, it did obviously terrify us enough and then, you know, limited his activities in a huge way because... You know, we, we live in Florida where there's a lot of water and a lot of activities that involve water. And, it's you know, it's really scary to think about what could happen if, if he's in a place where he's not able to, to steady himself. Mm. You do mention in the book that your own father, uh, some years earlier, and I, if I remember correctly, it was maybe even a year or so before uh, your young son was born, your father suffered some kind of of brain injury and and essentially never woke up. Can you tell us about that and about the connection between that sad incident or situation and and then what was befalling uh, your young son? Yes. So my father um, had a had um, a stroke. And he was just unable to speak, really, or unable to communicate and move much. Um, and that happened. That happened um, 
you know, at the time of writing of the book, it had happened six years ago. So it was something that I had, I had you know, learned to experience and learn to deal with. Um, but truly, you know, for me, the moment of feeling that I was caring for a sick father and, and a sick son, um, I think resulted in a lot of the writing in the book. Mm. Um, it was, I needed a catharsis, you know, to, to be able to process what that was, what that was like to see sort of illness, um, in many ways manifest, um, within, within my life. And so I'm assuming that, for instance, some of the the poems that we find within the text of your book are poems that were written in the moment as you were experiencing this. Yes, yes. So the book is really um, almost like a scrapbook of the experience of of the seizures starting and us trying to understand them and trying to piece together what could look like um, healing and what could look like um, treatment for him because, you know, at some point we didn't even think healing was possible, that it would have to be sort of a form of attenuation, which means, you know, you're, you're treating the disease in a way that it stops being, um, it stops being eruptive of your life so that you're able to live with it, right? Um, with the, it's like a condition. Um, and there's a poem that I write in the book, it, you know, about conditions, like what on one condition you can live on the condition of this terms and conditions. Um, it's it's a really powerful and loaded word, um, but but definitely um, the writing is very fragmented and very eruptive, um, and I think that reflects sort of the seismic experience that we were living mm. with eruptions of sort of the unexpected. Right. We're speaking with Ana Maria Caballero about her, her memoir called A Petty Mall, A Mother's Healing Love Song, which tells the story of what uh, uh, she and her husband experienced when uh, their young son uh, began to experience strange, uh, unexplainable seizures, uh, which uh, ultimately were, were uh, diagnosed as some, some form of, of epilepsy. I, I want to be sure to ask you a couple of questions about the way in which this book is is written. Uh, I love the way it is written, but there are ways in which it is kind of unexpected in the way it is put together. That, that for instance, many times we are reading books that, sorry, we are, we are reading words that do not form complete sentences uh, and 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 there is a in a sense a very fragmentary uh, look to the book and feel to the words and uh, I think it is quite effective but I wonder how much of that was a very conscious artistic choice on your part and if so what was behind that choice yeah, so the book issues um, many articles and pronouns and punctuation marks um, because I think I was trying to approach the experience, approach meaning by carving out sort of the excess, right? So I wanted to just like have the words be less adorned. Um, there's a quote that I really love by poet Mary Howe that says that for poets, it's really hard to resist metaphor. Because then we have to live with and endure the thing itself, and that that hurts us for some reason. 
And I, I think it's really accurate and very powerful. I mean, when we adorn language, when we decorate it, sometimes it's because we're afraid of feeling what it is we're saying. But the book really just cuts away and, like, carves out the fat. Um, and it just leaves, you know, very essential words in a way that might sound or read unexpected, um, but I think are able to generate an emotional uh, reaction within the reader. Mm. You've made the choice for this book to be written in the present tense. What is behind that choice? Well, I wrote it as I was living it. Um, so it's that's because I was in the present tense. Um, it, you know, of course, I edited it afterwards for many, many months, but the the core of it was written in the present moment as you know, as soon as we left the doctor's appointment, I was scribbling notes. So it was it was of the moment. It's a very visceral sort of lived record of that moment of my life. And it's particularly striking that uh, you, you already mentioned the fact that certain certain pronouns will, will be missing or, or certain articles to, to give the book a very spare look. And it's especially interesting when you will pose a question, but that question will not end with a question mark. I, I'm not sure, but I don't think there are any question marks anywhere uh, in, in this manuscript. And that's a very intriguing choice as well. What is behind that? Um, yes, thank you for asking that. You know, it's a very thoughtful question. Um, so I decided to omit the question mark because the entire book is a question. It is a question mark in and of itself. And I wanted to draw attention to the act of questioning by omitting that mark. Um, so, you know, as you sense, there's something missing and you wonder about it, um, but it brings you in wondering and in thinking, you know, why this happened. It makes you come closer to look um, at the questions themselves. I mean, if, if the mark was there, as you had expected, you might not look twice at the sentence. But now you're looking at it again, perhaps, because you're like, is this a question? Is it not? And then you realize, you know, of course it's a question. And that makes you come closer. Hmm. One of the most difficult aspects of all of this is that, uh, I mean, it's hard enough when when we when we have someone we love who who is diagnosed with something very serious, and that diagnosis is very clear and specific. We know what's going on, why it's happening, and what's probably going to happen next. Uh, this, of course, was a situation in which so much of this was couched in unknowns. And at one point you tell us in the book that the underlying cause of 50% of seizures is unknown. How difficult was that uh, aspect of all of this? The fact that, especially in the early going, there were so few answers to the many questions that you and your husband had about your son and what had befallen him. It was really challenging. Um, you know, I, I definitely think that we embarked on a, on a quest to find an answer. We, we just, like, wouldn't take it for, we wouldn't take no answer for an answer. Um, and we and we insisted on the fact that, you know, we, we wanted to know more. We wanted to do all sorts of testing. We wanted to look for alternative methods of healing because I felt like, Perhaps the answer wouldn't be fully fully formed, but we could get something better than what we were being given. 
Um, and I had that faith, that like sense inside me that it was possible. And that's why we insisted. One of the uh, clarifications that you, you give us at, at one point is the difference between seizures, uh, uh, tonic-clonic seizures, uh, once known as grand mal, and then focal seizures or petty mal seizures. And uh, it, it was your, your son's seizures were, were more of the, the latter, and that's also what my own younger brother uh, experiences when he has a, a seizure. I'd never stop to think about the literal meaning of the old terminology. A grand mal seizure is really bad, and a petit mal seizure is 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 just a little bad. I mean, that's literally what those words mean. But that's you know, talk about a misnomer. I mean, there is something so terrifying about these seizures, no matter how they manifest themselves, and even these seizures that your son was experiencing were were so so frightening uh explain why they are called focal seizures um it's because they emerge in one location in the brain so they're able to pinpoint where the seizure is being generated it's almost like an earthquake right they're able to say okay this is ground zero for the earthquake or for the seizure um so that's that's why they're focal but there's some that are sort of more generalized, you know, sort of more vast within the brain. Um, And that's why that differentiation is made. And I definitely, you know, did think that the term of petit mal was, was really an interesting term for, for anything. And obviously, you know, the book braids the story of the illness, a much more serious illness of a good friend's baby. So, you know, I did feel like as I was going through this, like my, my bad was literaler than, than the bad that she was experiencing. And it made me just think about sort of that, you know, the levels of bad and how sometimes we don't need things to be, um, you know, so, so devastating for us to learn lessons and evolve. Um, and so that's why I, I gave my book that, that name, a petit mal. Uh, you early on in the book uh, begin referring to the doctors uh, in the hospital and in clinic and so on uh, as witch doctors. Can you explain what drew you to that term? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I love alternative medicine. I think that there's so much wisdom there and, and other ways of knowing and learning and feeling and experiencing the world. And people, you know, who don't understand it think it's 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 witchy. It's it's um, you know of not of this world um, in a way that perhaps feels heretical to traditional medicine. But for me, that term is is full of tenderness, and it's, it's a reclaiming of it um, and a loving of it. So I I I say it with pride when I say uh, my witch doctors. <laughs> um, so so you're using that term more to refer to to those that uh, attempted to help your son through alternative means. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, versus the Western doctors. Right. Um, when you think of what the sort of the standard care was that they that they were trying to extend to him, what what left you most dissatisfied? 
about that? I think that there was a treatment of the parents that was, it was like we didn't deserve to know. I felt like the doctors were holding back information because it was complicated and probably not clear cut and explaining it would be difficult and probably lead to more questions. Um, but, but I really didn't think that that kind of paternalistic treatment was fair, um, especially when, you know, so much is at stake. One really interesting moment in the book is when uh, you are in search of a second opinion of of your son's uh, situation, and you write, to get a second opinion, you must first get medical records of first opinion. This is wicked. <laughs> Explain why, of all things, you, you, you call that situation wicked. Oh, my goodness. The, the whole medical records system in the U.S. is is just a nightmare. I mean, you have to use faxes to communicate and request information. And, you know, I, I, I play around with the word fax and its similarity to another expression um, in, in my book because it's, it's unbelievable that, you know, I'm the guardian of my son and I'd have to write letters and fax them over requesting information that I wasn't given after going to the appointment. I understand if they can't email it or they can't, you know, readily sort of share it because of concerns. But, you know, I, I requested information at the doctor and they, they, they just wouldn't print it out for me. They wouldn't hand me the sheet. It was, I had to go through these processes. Um, and then I had to write what was going on with my son in my own words, they said. That was literally in a, a request um, please explain your child's situation in your own words. <laughs> mm. You, uh, as you have already touched on, eventually uh, go exploring uh, alternative forms of medicine uh, in, in search of help. And, uh, and it sounds like in Colombia, as in other places as well, there is perhaps an especially robust landscape of alternative medicine. Can you just describe that to us? Um, yeah, so, you know, I have a, a, a passage in my book where I run into graduated at a high school reunion, and he'd become an endocrinologist. And I was talking to him about my experience at the hospital with my son, because he happened to work there, as well as in Colombia. And he mentioned something to me that I think was really poignant, which was that at the hospital, and, and it happens in many U.S. hospitals, he said, um, there's such expensive equipment, and doctors have a real pressure to use it. There's real pressure, he said, to use this equipment and to frame it in such a way that it looks like results. And that sometimes better results are re received if you just stop and think and stop and observe and stop and look without all the fancy tools. So I think, you know, I, that really sort of struck me, and that, that really, I think, summarizes my experience. In Colombia, I felt like the doctors were really asking questions. I didn't feel like they were asking questions in the U.S., but also it was the alternative doctors who asked questions. Hmm. Well, we follow this journey uh, with great interest through the course of your, your fascinating and, and moving book. Uh, and we'll leave it to our listeners to explore uh, the details. At one point, you pose this intriguing question, towards the very end of the book, actually. Am I writing a story 
that is not mine to write? Uh, that's an intriguing question uh, you were asking yourself. And uh, what answer did you ultimately come up with? Um, yes, it's 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 my story in in the sense that I it was my experience living it, um, and it also had to do with me at one point thinking, you know, when do I decide to to medicate my son? At what point do we do we do we do a treatment that supposedly will work immediately versus you know holding off to try to find potentially healthier, more holistic um, solutions? So I think that there was, you know, as a writer, you're when you're writing about other people you always feel like you're you're sort of taking stories from them in a way. But at the end of the day, you know, it's all passing through you and it's how you're interpreting it and you're filtering and seizing it and putting it back out into the world in a way that does belong to you. Um, one of my favorite writers said that, uh, Cesla Milo says that um, once a writer is born into the family, the family is finished. <laughs> um, and I think, I think there's great accuracy in that. And um, yeah, I, I'm happy I wrote the story. I'm happy it's it's a record. And can I ask to conclude uh, how your son is at this moment? He's great. Thank you for asking. He's great. I won't ruin the end, but, but he's great. Thank, thank God and thank the universe. Hmm. The book again is A Petty Mall, A Mother's Healing Love Song, and uh, the author Ana Maria Caballero. Ana Maria Cabrera, it was great to speak with you, great to uh, read your book and to uh, follow this uh, intriguing and thought-provoking story, which is so beautifully written. Thank you so much. Thank you for being my morning show guest, and best wishes to you and your whole family. Thank you all so much. Very grateful. Have a wonderful, wonderful day.